Hi folks, a warning here. This episode includes graphic descriptions of assault images in a cartoon. You know, I seem to have a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time in a way. Walter Bargan was a junior at the University of Missouri in Columbia in February 1969. Tell me about the day that you got arrested. <clears throat> it was a very cold day. The wind was blowing. I, I remember everyone was really bundled up. Um, and, you know, I saw a couple of uh, very obvious people who were policemen, plainclothes policemen. Walter walks down Hit Street. Groups of students brave the cold weather as they walk to class, cutting through the neighborhood of historic classroom buildings. On this day, tour guides are leading high schoolers and their parents around the school, trying to entice them to spend their money here, the premier university in the state. Walter is passing by the ornate three-story clock tower of Memorial Union. Standing in front of the clock tower, there were four students with stacks of pamphlets. To each passerby, they hold out a hand with a copy of their underground newspaper. And I happened to walk by one of the people who was giving away the free press, and he said, you know, and I kind of vaguely knew him, and he said, hey, you know, can you watch these newspapers while I go in and get a cup of coffee to warm up? And I said, sure. And it was like 30 seconds later, the, uh, the police came up and arrested her, you know, the four people who were handing out the, uh, the copies of the paper. The stack of papers Walter's friend handed him, the one he just got arrested for passing out, is the latest issue of the Free Press Underground. It's a student paper that publishes for a couple of years in the 60s and 70s. What generally was the tone of the Free Press Underground on campus? It, it was uh, very provocative. You know, um, there, it was, uh, could be angry. Um, it was really trying to point out um, the flaws, the contradictions, and, and the darkness of our society, of, of it, our lives being controlled by the military-industrial complex. In February of 1969, more students are enrolled at the University of Missouri than ever before. State funding for higher education is high, and the GI Bill has made college more accessible to middle and working class kids. Of course, the GI Bill comes at a price. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam is going on as well at this time. Oh, it colored everything. Yeah, what was No, it was that? a dark cloud. After graduation, some of those students will be conscripted into military service and shipped off to Vietnam. The war is in full swing. The Free Press Underground is highly political, and it is very critical of, you guessed it, the Vietnam War, of Richard Nixon, of the CIA, and the list goes on. The cover of Volume 4, Number 3 of the Free Press Underground features a political cartoon reprinted from a publication by a national group called Students for a Democratic Society. And here's the warning for the graphic description section. The cartoon depicts two groups of police officers sexually assaulting two women. One woman is dressed as Lady Justice. She's being held up by one officer with his pants down, raping her. Another officer uses his baton to hold up Lady Justice's chin. In the foreground, another officer with his pants off pins down a woman dressed as the Statue of Liberty as he rapes her. Other officers in the cartoon smile, laugh, and help with the assault. 
Words circling the cartoon say liberty and justice for all. You know, um, it's justice being um, violated. It's our freedoms being violated by the police. And, you, you know, you still see that today. The delivery of that message does not sit well with university officials, especially on a day with so many parents and prospective students in town. The Free Press Underground staffers, along with Walter, are arrested for distributing the paper, arrested on accusations of possessing and distributing obscene material. Walter's grades may have saved him. He was a strong student, a double major in anthropology and philosophy, and said both departments vouched for him after the arrest. Three students, including Walter, are released, but not Barbara Papish. Barbara Papish is the paper's editor and a graduate student studying journalism at the University of Missouri. Barbara is called in front of the university's student conduct committee for her role. The committee finds her guilty of violating a conduct code that prohibits indecent speech and conduct. A few months later, she is expelled from the university. But that is far from the last time campus officials hear from her. Papish's expulsion begins a pivotal battle over free speech on campus and what kind of authority school administrators have. A battle that could only go down in a place like Missouri and end up in the Supreme Court. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, forgotten, or misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened, why did it happen, and how has that shaped the state today? I'm Christopher Husted. You're listening to the Show Me the State podcast from KBIA 91.3 FM. Find more episodes on KBIA.org or any of your podcast apps. Back to the show. Before she's expelled in 1969, Barbara Papish is a 32-year-old grad student and has been enrolled as such for five and a half years. Generally, a master's in journalism takes two years and a PhD takes four. So she isn't exactly a devout student. Barbara Papish was in academic trouble. That's Sandy Davidson. She's a media law expert who recently retired after 30 years as a professor of communications law at the University of Missouri's School of Journalism. The semester before she was expelled, she had enrolled in one class, Ceramics 3. The semester that she was expelled, she enrolled in two classes, a one-hour class in research journalism and a three-hour class, Ceramics 4. I always say that I think that she was concerned that we might deplete the world of trees. If we had to go back to clay tablets, she would be ready. <laughs> Maybe it's not surprising. Barbara is on academic probation, which will be used against her by the university's defense team during her trial. By most accounts, Barbara Papish is a poor student. But she does make a good impression on one professor— well, I didn't really know where Columbia, Missouri was. Who teaches a subject that anyone invested in world politics in the 1960s and 70s might clamor to take. And I had gotten a telegram offering me a position in political science. A telegram? 
a telegraph. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've heard of those. Yeah. yeah. They actually, <laughs> In movies. <laughs> they used to have those. Paul Wallace was a junior professor of South Asian studies when Barbara was a student. She was in one of his South Asian studies courses. So, so in, in as class, I remember her, she was a serious student. She really was focused on the course. She knew the material. Uh, as I remember, she got an A grade because I wrote. I remember writing a good recommendation, though I don't remember any of the lines in the recommendation. So she was a good, serious student. For Barbara the activist, South Asian studies fits the bill. She is part of a group of students who regularly protest the Vietnam War on campus. Remember, her paper, The Free Press Underground, publishes articles critical of the war, among other political and social issues of the day. Several pieces use some pretty strong language. University officials take issue with a cover image of police officers raping the Statue of Liberty and Lady Justice. Barbara, probably anticipating this response, writes on page four, Someone might consider the cartoon on the cover of this issue as vulgar. It is not. It is obscene. But it is a social comment concerning a greater obscenity. Chicago cops are obscene. Napalm is the greatest obscenity of the 20th century. And administrators who fear a different view are also obscene. University administrators put Papish in front of the Student Conduct Committee. The committee rules Papish is guilty of violating a conduct code that required students to, quote, observe generally accepted standards of conduct. Generally accepted standards of conduct. That's pretty broad. The conduct code goes on and specifically prohibits indecent conduct or speech. The Student Conduct Committee finds Barbara guilty of indecent speech. The university uses this one line in the Student Conduct Code, along with her academic probation, to justify its next move. Barbara Papish is expelled from the University of Missouri. Barbara isn't just mad about her expulsion, she's mad about something a lot bigger than herself. The university, as she saw, was violating her constitutionally endowed freedom of speech. Also, this is the late 60s. There's a lot of indecent speech happening on college campuses across the country. The free speech movement really launches at UC Berkeley in 1964. Student protests over the Vietnam War and government corruption spread and take over the news cycle. So how, in the middle of Missouri, did a student passing out a publication make it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Paul Wallace, Barbara's professor, came to the University of Missouri from California, where these kinds of protests happened on a much bigger scale. Do you think Barbara Papish would have been expelled if she passed out the copy of the Free Press Underground at Berkeley? No, no. Why not? Because that was being, that was freely available. And, you know, that wasn't considered to be a radical step. You know, somebody may have said, you know, you're using foul language, and, you know, that's, that's not civil. And then you could have a dialogue over that, and you might even yell at each other. But that was a normal interaction. Missouri, of course, is smaller and definitely a bit more conservative than parts of the country where these demonstrations might be a bit more of a spectacle. Professor Sandy Davidson says certainly that played a role in why Barbara's story ends up in the Supreme Court. But she says the University of Missouri-Columbia is also special. Why is it Missouri? Well, back to the fact that we had the oldest school of journalism in the country. 
We had a grand tradition of freedom of, of speech and expression, and the School of Journalism does tend to attract people who are really interested in First Amendment rights, of course. So we had the right campus, we had the right person who would persevere, and the ACLU helped too. Barbara's case is first heard at the Federal District Court for Western Missouri, and the court rules in favor of the university. She appeals to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which also rules in the university's favor. After losing in the two lower courts, Barbara Papish appeals her case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had ruled that public officials can impose limitations on free speech based on the time, place, and manner of the expression. This means that the government can enforce rules about when and where protests take place, how many people can be there, and the way people protest. But the First Amendment still mostly protects the message of the speech. But on March 19, 1973, the Supreme Court rules that the University of Missouri, which, yes, indeed is a public entity, had violated Barbara Papish's First Amendment right and could not expel her for distributing that copy of the Free Press Underground. The court said this, that neither the political cartoon nor the story were constitutionally obscene or otherwise unprotected. That's the court's language. The court rules in favor of Barbara because the federal free speech law applies to state college campuses too. Basically, university officials said the paper's content was offensive in their view. They were offended by what was printed. But the Supreme Court said that didn't matter because free speech policy applies to all expression regardless of the substance of the message expressed. Barbara Papish and the rest of the Free Press Underground staff were expressing a political stance, so their speech was protected. Was her speech offensive? Clearly. But the First Amendment is not designed to protect pretty speech that everybody would agree with. That needs no protection. The First Amendment protects the speech that is on the fringes, if you want. It is offensive to some people, but again, it's constitutionally protected. We'll be right back. You're listening to our award-winning podcast, Show Me the State, from KBIA 91.3 FM. You can find more episodes on KBIA.org on any of your podcast apps or even Spotify. We delve into a lot of Missouri history with some of our most knowledgeable experts, just search for Show Me the State. Okay, back to the program. So the Supreme Court rules in favor of Barbara Papish. State universities cannot punish students for indecent speech if the expression does not violate time, place, and manner rules. Because of Barbara Papish, college students everywhere are protected under the U.S. Constitution. Papish versus Board of Curators has been cited in more than 900 cases since the ruling came down in 1973. The Papish case set a precedent that still enables college campuses to host controversial speakers. More broadly, these protections have allowed public universities to remain a place where free, sometimes incendiary, dialogue can happen. So, problem solved, right? 
it's interesting sometimes how short the memory can be on a campus of a major decision like this. Fast forward to 2012. The Free Press Underground is no longer in print, but student publications are still alive and well on the University of Missouri campus. The Maneater has operated as an independent student-run newspaper since 1955. The paper is given space in a university building and a university employee oversees ad sales, but The Maneater is written and edited entirely by students. For years, the paper published a satire issue for April Fool's Day. And per tradition, the issue is produced by reporters and section editors. The executive editors are not involved in the production at all. The April Fool's edition is a surprise to the managing editor, and it really was. It's tradition, right? It's tradition. On this particular April Fool's edition in 2012, the paper's usual masthead was replaced with a large, bold-faced type that read, the carpet eater. That word is a derogatory and offensive term often used for lesbians. Needless to say, people were not happy. Within weeks of the paper's release, the editor-in-chief and managing editors received letters from the university threatening disciplinary action for the offensive use of the slur. Did people invoke the papish case? Yes. Oh, yes. People again from outside, people from inside, including me, yes. I wrote a column to remind folks on campus. Don't forget. Yes, yes. The Supreme Court has already decided this. And University of Missouri, you lost. Ultimately, the paper apologized for the controversial edition, and the managing editor stepped down. It's been 50 years since Barbara Papish passed out the Free Press Underground beside the archway of Memorial Union. And a lot has changed. The Vietnam War is over, Nixon resigned, and the students who attended the university when Barbara was there are nearing retirement. And the ways we communicate have changed a lot since then, too. Sure, students still protest on campus quads, notably at the University of Missouri in 2015 when concerned student 1950 protested racial issues on campus. But a lot of political discourse has moved online, and now, especially social media. I think that when people are in the privacy of their homes, sending out their messages, maybe their tweets, filters are off. Some of the things that I have seen on social media just go beyond the pale. Legal scholars like Sandy Davidson will tell you that free speech law has not caught up with the digital age. The case law that defines what speech is protected and what is not generally dealt with in-person interactions or stories and images in printed publications. And while campus publications like the Free Press Underground or the Maneater have more structured guidelines these days, the online communities formed still feel a bit like the Wild West. The rhetoric on social media sometimes is downright hateful. The question would become, when does it become hate speech? Clearly, some speech can be prohibited. A true threat can be prohibited, and social media has certainly given an outlet for threats. Is that sort of the new 
frontier, if you will, about freedom of speech when we when we now are talking about how much hate speech we do see, not necessarily just on social media, but you know, on campuses, and what needs to be kind of addressed there. Some people might want to say we need to get in and control the internet more. That scares me. Clearly, if the speech has gone to the point that it is a true threat, that is a federal crime. These days, with such incendiary discourse online, discourse is generous, how do you prevent the hate and threats but protect free speech? I think education, honestly, trying to make people aware of the harm that words can cause even if it does not rise to the position of a legal offense, just trying to be kinder to our fellow citizens, that should be a goal. So what happened to Barbara Papish? Surprise, Barbara didn't return to school in Columbia to finish her master's degree after the case. She did earn another bachelor's degree in art and a master's degree in technical writing from Bowling Green State University. She moved to the East Coast and worked at a few publications in the Boston area. Unsurprisingly, she remained politically active. After moving to Beverly, Massachusetts in 1984, she joined the Beverly League of Women Voters and acted as the treasurer of the Beverly Democratic City Committee in the early 2000s. She stayed involved in government committees and art festivals. According to her obituary that was published in a local Salem, Massachusetts paper, those who knew her said they miss her upbeat personality and her commitment to standing up for her beliefs. Barbara Papish died on June 27, 2013, at the age of 76 after a long illness. Her case lives on in journalism classes and free speech activism circles. To me, she has the legacy of a strong woman who was committed to an important social issue. How many people would have the willpower to keep on going after losing at the trial court level and at the court of appeals level? Then to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and go to the Supreme Court of the United States to have your case argued. And I have to admire her for that willpower and commitment. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Zia Kelly produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Fumuliner. Our theme music was created by Columbia band Loose Loose. Thank you to our voice actor in this episode, Rebecca Smith. Special thanks also to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy.